Welcome to this month's Journal Club. I'm Bertha Wu and I'm joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director for the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre, as well as Dr. Miles Genishan, Research Fellow at the Alfred. We're going to cover three papers today, reviewing the topics of extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, use of bougie versus dilate in endotracheal intubations, as well as online low-intensity outreach programs for patients with suicidal ideation. So let's get started. Paper 1. The title of our first paper is Effect of Intra-Arrest Transport, Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and Immediate Invasive Assessment and Treatment on Functional Neurologic Outcome in Refractory Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. This paper was published last month in JAMA by Beholavec J. Atal. The clinical question was, in patients with witness refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, does early intra-arrest transport, ECPR invasive assessment and treatment improve outcomes compared with standard resuscitation? It's a single-centre randomised clinical trial in Prague over eight years, from March 2013 to October 2020. The target population were adults aged 18 to 25 years receiving ongoing resuscitation for witness out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of presumed cardiac etiology, and who received a minimum of five minutes of advanced cardiac life support without return of circulation, and when the ECPR team was available at the cardiac centre. The planned sample size was 285 and 256 participants enrolled. The intervention in the invasive strategy group was mechanical compression initiated followed by intra-arrest transport to a cardiac centre for eCPR and immediate invasive assessment and treatment. The comparison group was a standard strategy group where regular advanced cardiac life support was continued on site. Patients were observed until death or day 180. The primary outcome was survival with a good neurological outcome using the cerebral performance scale, or CPC, defined as CPC 1 to 2 at 180 days. The secondary outcomes were neurological recovery at 30 days, defined as CPC 1 to 2 at any time within the first 30 days, and cardiac recovery, defined as no need for pharmacological or mechanical cardiac support for at least 24 hours. So what were the findings? Amongst 256 patients, 100% of them completed the trial. 31.5% in the invasive strategy group and 22% in the standard strategy group survived to 180 days with good neurologic outcome, with a difference of 9.5% and p-value of 0.09. At 30 days, neurologic recovery had occurred in 30.6% in the invasive strategy group and in 18.2% in the standard strategy group, with difference of 12.4% and p-value of 0.02. Cardiac recovery had occurred in 43.5% and 34.1% respectively, with difference of 9.4% and p-value of 0.12. Bleeding occurred more frequently in the invasive strategy group, with this occurring in 31% of invasive strategy group versus 15% of standard strategy group. The authors concluded that among patients with refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the bundle of early intra-arrest transport, eCPR, and invasive assessment and treatment did not significantly improve survival with neurological favourable outcome at 180 days compared with standard resuscitation. However, they also concluded that the trial was possibly underpowered to detect a clinically relevant difference. So, Peter, studies like the arrest studies in the past show that eCPR does improve survival, but this study showed a negative finding. What are your thoughts on why this would be the case? 
Yeah, it's an interesting study and and well done to the investigators who who attempted this. It's a massive logistics exercise setting this sort of study up, let alone the actual protocol itself. I think there's a few things here. Firstly, uh, the power of the study. Now, as a clinician, I would regard any improvement in survival from cardiac arrest from, say, 20% to 23, 24% as being pretty significant. You know, in, in relative terms, that would be a, you know, 25% increase or something. So that's the first point. And, and their, their um, power calculation was based on 15% difference, absolute, as opposed to relative. Uh, and then they did a futility analysis based on that 15%, which, of course, uh, found that it was futile, even though really there was about a 10% difference <laughs> Uh, so far in the outcomes uh, that they had. So uh, I'm a bit disappointed, I guess, in the way they constructed the the power calculations and interpreted that um, and even finished early, although it wasn't that much early. So that's that's the first point. I think there are glimmers of hope uh, within this as well. Um, and so if you look at the... Um, the, the other point that's important is that when you look at the figure one in the study, 11 patients were randomised to standard um, care and, and got eCPR, so, uh, and, and those patients did relatively well. So I think, again, um, you know, when you're dealing with small numbers uh, with, uh, you know, a bit over 100 in each arm, uh, a few patients either way can make the difference between a 0.05 and a not a 0.05. So uh, there's definitely a trend in inverted commas um, and uh, there's a signal that it, it might be okay, but it was grossly underpowered in my mind to, to determine whether a clinically relevant outcome uh, was there. Importantly, um, we did a, a, a podcast with the guys from University of Washington in Vienna um, looking at an article uh, just come out in, in a journal called Artificial Organs by Squizzato in, in Italy. Uh, and that was a, that put uh, a systematic review and looked at outcomes using eCPR. And uh, again, this, this review suggested um, that there was uh, a survival benefit. And I think when you put all the information together, um, with the available um, studies, including observational studies, uh, it's clear that you do get a benefit from uh, eCPR in a, a sort of structured cardiac arrest system, if you like, um, in, in urban areas. So in my mind, uh, it's, it's, it's not a negative study. It's an underpowered study that contributes to the overall body of evidence. And if you look at it that way, the question then is how do you, you know, in a city like Melbourne, uh, 6 million people um, over a large geographic area, how do you actually um, establish uh, an eCPR protocol that works given that you're talking um, short transport times and so forth and maintaining those skills? So this was like um, it's only about 5% of cardiac arrests um, and so this was over six years in a big city in Europe. Uh, the individual expertise of each practitioner 24-7 um, is, is very difficult to maintain, and, and I think that's where the logistics training 
systematization uh, of this technique, I think, is where the problem is. I think most people now would agree it has a role, but how you do that at a systematic level 24-7 across a whole uh, large urban area, I think, is still largely undetermined. Yep. So following on what you just said, Peter, um, in this study, transport to a cardiac centre where eCPR was available occurred within five minutes. And bystander CPR um, happened in 98% of the time. Um, so, Miles, how do you think these numbers compare to the numbers in Victoria? And in terms of the applicability of this study in Victoria, what are your thoughts about it? Thanks, Berta. Um, with with this study, um, with that high level of CPR, um, that's, I think it's got more to do with the, um, the section criteria for people in the study. So they needed to have CPR to be included. I think in addition to what Peter's saying, as well as answering your question, I think when we assess ECMO, we're not just looking at ECMO with these papers. We're also assessing the entire pre-hospital system um, and the system that we're operating in. Um, so that that's possibly the reason why there is some variation um, between the studies. And in the review that um, Peter's talking about, um, those most of those studies, well, in fact, I think all of them were different in that the patients were recruited once they arrived in hospital. Um, and this is a this is a pre-hospital recruitment. Um, so this study is different compared to the the other body of evidence. So it does it does build on um, what we've what we know before. Um, so in terms of the the applicability to Victoria, um, what we probably need to take away from this study is when is the when is the time to pull the trigger on ECMO? So when do we need to say this patient's for ECMO? Because um, in this study, um, patients would the decision to go ahead with ECMO would have been done early, much earlier compared to other studies that we that we have on the same area. And I think that's reflected in the the overall um, number of survivors being higher in this paper compared to other others um, looking at the at similar things. So when we talk about the applicability to our situation, we've got to kind of consider um, when we when we pull the trigger on ECMO and how our pre-hospital system fits in with all of this. Sorry, Miles, just just on that, the yeah. median time um, from collapse uh, to randomization was twenty-four minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. So we so it's it's a it's a difficult question to to answer because we've got to look at quite a few variables with that. All right, let's move on to the next paper. Paper two. The next paper is titled Effect of Offering Care Management or Online Dialectical Behavioural Therapy Skills Training Versus Usual Care on Self-Harm Among Adult Outpatients with Suicidal Ideation. This paper was also published in JAMA last month by Simon G. E. Atal. The clinical question was, can low-intensity outreach programs based on effective clinical interventions but delivered primarily online prevent self-harm or suicidal behaviour among outpatients reporting frequent suicidal ideation? It's a pragmatic, randomised clinical trial conducted at four US integrated health systems from March 2015 to September 2018. The target population included outpatients reporting frequent suicidal thoughts, identified using routine patient health questionnaire depression screening at the four US integrated health systems. A total of 18,882 patients were randomised over the course of three years when the trial was conducted. There were two intervention groups. One received care management intervention that included systematic outreach and care. The second group received skills training intervention, which introduced four dialectical behavioural therapy skills, including mindfulness, mindfulness of current emotion, opposite action and paced breathing. Interventions were delivered up to 12 months, 
primarily through EMR online messaging to supplement ongoing mental health care. The comparison group received usual mental health care. Primary outcome was time to first non-fatal or fatal self-harm, with non-fatal self-harm ascertained from health system records and fatal self-harm ascertained from state mortality data. Secondary outcomes included more severe self-harm, leading to death or hospitalization, and broader definition of self-harm, which included selected injuries and poisonings not originally coded as self-harm. So what were the findings of the study? Of the 8,644 patients recruited, 31% of participants offered care management and 39% offered skills training actively engaged in intervention programs. A total of 540 participants had a self-harm event, with 45 deaths attributed to self-harm and 495 people non-fatal, non-self-harm events. These self-harm events were contributed by 3.27% in care management, 3.92% in skills training, and 3.27% in usual care, which means that the risk of fatal or non-fatal self-harm over 18 months did not differ significantly between the care management and usual care groups. But this was significantly higher in the skills training group than in usual care. Risk of severe self-harm and the broader self-harm definition did not significantly differ between the care management and usual care groups or between the skills training and usual care groups. So the authors concluded that among adults with frequent suicidal ideation, offering care management did not significantly reduce self-harm and offering brief dialectical behavioral therapy skills training significantly increased risk of self-harm compared with usual care. These findings do not support implementation of the program tested in this study. So, Miles, with the COVID pandemic, we have moved more and more into telehealth and virtual medicine, but this paper shows that with psychiatric patients, providing care virtually might not be a good idea. What are your thoughts on the findings of this paper? Um, Yeah, so uh, as part of my research, I'm looking at a lot of um, ways to administer ED care virtually. Um, And then psychiatric, sorry, so mental health patients are, ones you think would suit suit it well, uh, because it's not something that necessarily needs any physical intervention. Um, And you you think you'd be able to talk to people um, online. Um, But what this what this study shows, and um, it is it is a benefit because it it is a well designed study in that it's got a large number of patients um, that um, it was uh, randomized and and patients were blinded to the interventions that were happening to to other people, um, is that it, it doesn't actually um, help all that much, uh, especially when we're talking about a, a low intensity um, intervention such as this, um, which is a useful thing to know. Um, I think some things just to just to note with with this study was that um, it was done on a on a large population, um, and not not all of that population would have been at high risk, um, and everyone included in the study would have had insurance and been employed and spoke English. So they're not not what we would call the most vulnerable population, um, even though there are a lot of patients included. Um, the patients that we we tend to see in the emergency department um, are, are patients with uh, borderline personality disorder or. Um, complex um, PTSD. Um, so those those are the ones that are, are most at risk and the ones that we probably need to have more high intensity um, intervention with. Um, those are the ones that I'm that I would want kind of I'm more concerned about and would want a study that kind of looked at those patients in particular. Um, so it, the this study doesn't address doesn't go into that kind of granular detail. 
but what we can probably conclude from this is that if we if we're going to use a low intensity um, intervention and we deliver it uh, virtually, um, we're not getting the connection with the patients that we should, and the intervention isn't going to make all that much of a difference. Um, and in the case of the skills training, which was just administered via video with very little kind of interaction uh, between the study staff and and the patients themselves, uh, it may actually do some harm, um, which is uh, which is an important thing to be aware of, uh, which is useful is a useful thing that this study has flagged. Yeah, I agree. Certainly it doesn't seem like this paper's population, study population, um, correlates to our population that we see in ED. Um, so, Peter, DBT is evidence-based therapy and has been shown by research to help patients with significant disorders of self. But, in fact, in this study, they actually found that the risk of fatal or non-fatal self-harm was, in fact, significantly higher in the skills training group than in usual care. Um, what do you think – why do you think this is the case – yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, I, I was the one that selected this paper and it does seem a bit left field for an emergency journal club, but it's actually, as Miles said, it's becoming more and more important for us uh, as we move to virtual ED and how we deliver our platforms. And, and as we all know, mental health is one of our biggest single groups. Um, <clears throat> so this, uh, you know, we, we do see a lot of people with low-level anxiety, depression, whatever, and, you know, what do you do with them? Do you um, keep them in ED overnight? Do you refer them to the psychs, whatever? Um, so our clinical pathways are all over the shop and with very little good evidence. So this is an RCT. Interesting RCT, the randomization was pre-consent, um, which means that uh, people are allocated to a, um, uh, a group uh, might not want that treatment and therefore uh, you don't know that before you allocate them to it so you get a higher dropout rate obviously but uh, that form of randomization is probably sensible in this group but it does bring in all sorts of issues the other thing is the intervention although you say it's evidence-based it's sort of like a rag bag of pretty low-level crappy sort of stuff um, and it's sort of, in my mind, this, this article sort of shows that if you give people sort of a crappy throwaway, you know, showbag uh, of interventions that don't really engage them, it can create harm. Um, it's almost like you're throwing mud in their face, in my mind. Uh, they've come in with a, I, I want to talk to a human and I want to... Um, you know, engage, and I want someone to care about me. And you say, "Here, here's some, uh, here's some little exercises for you to do." Uh, you know, you're not important. And and I think this has been shown in other uh, virtual platforms. Um, the the idea that you first need to engage with the person, you know, in a human way, and then you can sometimes do some neat little tricks. But to just throw them neat little tricks when really what these people, many of these people want is a human interaction is, is actually counterproductive. So I think it's, an, it's actually an important study, even though it's uh, a bit left field for us, um, because we are going to, you know, there's a whole lot of things we do like musculoskeletal pain, back pain, uh, and, and even some of these chronic illnesses like COPD and so forth, where we want to give them a package of care um, post-discharge but how you deliver that 
uh, whether it's virtually, whether it's with a repeat visit, with it, whether it's um, you know a uh, telehealth. Uh, these these are questions that are largely unexplored. So this is a great start, I think, to to that exploration. All right, let's move on to the next paper. Paper three. Effective use of a bougie versus endotracheal tube with stylet on successful intubation on the first attempt amongst critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation. It was published in JAMA last year in December by driver B.E. et al. The clinical question was, in critically ill adult patients undergoing tracheal intubation, does use of a tracheal tube introducer, what we call bougie, increase the incidence of successful intubation on the first attempt compared with use of an endotracheal tube with stylet? It's a multi-center and blinded, pragmatic, randomized clinical trial performed between April 2019 and February 2021. The target population was 1,102 critically ill adults undergoing tracheal intubation with sedation and standard geometry blades in seven emergency departments and eight intensive care units in the U.S., the intervention was use of a bougie, and the comparison was use of an endotracheal tube with stylet. The outcome measures were primary outcome, single insertion of a laryngoscopy blade into the mouth, and either a single insertion of a bougie followed by a single insertion of an ETT into the mouth, or a single insertion of an ETT with stylet into the mouth. Secondary outcome was incidence of severe hypoxemia defined as SATs lower than 80% during the interval between induction and two minutes post-tracheal intubation. They also looked at some exploratory procedural outcomes, procedural complications to clinical outcomes like time from induction to intubation, esophageal intubation, and median ventilator-free days. So what were the findings of the study? Successful intubation on the first attempt occurred in 80.4% in the bougie group and 83% in the stylet group. Successful intubation on the first attempt did not significantly differ between the groups. This finding also did not change with adjusted analysis and multiple sensitivity analysis, including one defining successful intubation on the first attempt based only on the number of laryngoscope insertions. These analyses also showed that the odds of successful intubation on the first attempt did not differ significantly between groups in any of the subgroups, including among more experienced operators, patients with difficult airway characteristics, or when video laryngoscopy was used. In terms of secondary outcome, 11% in the bougie group versus 8.8% in the stylet group experienced severe hypoxemia. Both groups had low incidence of esophageal intubation, pneumothorax, as well as injury to oral glottic or thoracic structures. So the authors concluded that among critically ill adults undergoing tracheal intubation, use of a bougie did not significantly increase the incidence of successful intubation on the first attempt compared with use of an endotracheal tube with stylet. So this study showed both intervention groups having only 80% first-pass success rates, and that's pretty low compared to, say, previously when we had the BEAM trial, for example, in 2018, the success rate was 98% when Bougie was used. Um, What are your comments on this and thoughts on this, Peter? Yeah, it's an interesting study, and and it would have been very difficult to do, um, you know, across the sites uh, and maintaining, you know, uh, rigour with regard to... um, the way the trial was conducted. Um, yeah, there's a number of concerns with this study. Uh, it, certainly it's a large study and, and as I say, difficult to do with critically ill patients. But um, as you've pointed out, the first pass is quite low. I mean, compared at the Alfred, it's over 90% um, and consist- consistently with our airway audit. Um, and the rate of uh, hypoxia is also higher than you would expect. Um, 
So it seems to me that they're starting from a low base. Um, and then you've got uh, the issue around training and experience. So um, my, my, you know, it would be, it so much depends on who the senior operator is or the uh, consultant or whoever is with, most of them were residents. So if they uh, are not, if they if they don't routinely use bougie and they see some quick video and then they go and do it, um, that's a lot different to it being a part of your routine. Uh, at the Alfred, we uh, we advise to use the bougie routinely, even on easy in inverted commas intubations, so that we are familiar with its use and we um, and and everyone, including the nurse and whoever, uh, are aware that you're going through a standardised protocol. Um, so I think there are a sort of, um, I guess, warning bells around how this might play out. My uh, The other thing that's interesting was one of the exclusion criteria um, was where a bougie is specifically indicated, um, <laughs> which is probably the group you're most interested in um, because, uh, you know, they're the, they're the difficult group, I guess. So I, I, I feel that this study, um, it, it shows that there isn't a big difference between just in routine, easy, in inverted commas, intubations, but it doesn't really help us with the difficult ones, which are the ones we're most interested in. And my, my view, and certainly the view at the Alfred, is that um, if you use the bougie routinely, you'll be much better using it in a difficult airway uh, because you're familiar with how to use it. Um, so that, that were my thoughts on this study. And, Miles, um, for others who don't work at the Alfred, who don't have a protocol of using bougie before the endotracheal tube, um, what suggestions would you have for them or what advice would you have for them um, um, after reading this paper? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so this paper doesn't show a difference between using the bougie or the or the stylet, which is what I kind of would have intuitively imagined once you've got training on both. Um, what what this paper essentially assesses is um, how what is the what is the best technique for the person who isn't intubating every day, so the non anaesthetist in theatre. Um, and essentially, we can conclude that if you're talking about a departmental policy um, for for those groups of people, so the ED or the ICU, um, you just need to pick one. Um, I'd still prefer the bougie, but that's not what this this paper is suggesting. Um, but and then everyone needs to be on board. So it, the to your anesthet so the nurse helping out with the intubation and all the intubators just need to have, be doing this routinely, um, and it just needs to be standard practice um, just so that everyone's on the same page um, and I agree with Peter if you're doing that then when you do get to the the difficult airway you already uh, you already know what you're doing and you're not you're not fussing about trying to thread the ET tube down through the bougie and um, patient getting hypoxic whilst you're doing that um, I think in terms of its applicability to everywhere I think uh, there were quite a few inexperienced intubators I get the impression in this study um, which is uh, not how we would do things at the Alfred in terms of um, you wouldn't necessarily have a, an inexperienced intubator looking after a critically unwell patient. Um, but I think the lessons that we, we can take from this are just 
pick one and uh, make sure that everyone's on board. Mm. I think I still think this is a, a personal thing for the experienced intubator. So someone who's done lots and lots of intubations, you probably should be able to do both um, and have the skills for both. But if we're talking about um, protocol and policy for the entire department, um, I'd have pick one as your as your go to. Yeah. So certainly. So my take home point from this paper is that get good at one of the methods um, so that when you have a difficult airway, you be best be able to manage it. So that's a wrap for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next month. Thank you.